This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. I'm joined today by Dr. Theanne Chiros, Research Scientist at Columbia University, Assistant Professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology, or FIT, and co-founder of recent startups Werewool and Algenet. We'll be talking today about her work at the intersection of advanced materials and climate sustainability, about how nature inspires her engineering research, how a humanities background can be helpful in cutting-edge science, how her startups are working to reduce waste and increase performance in the fashion industry, her lessons learned about working with startup accelerator programs to cross the so-called valley of death, and why New York is a great place for those companies to start and grow. Dr. Shiros, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with the basics, if you don't mind. Tell me about the work of your lab here at Columbia and also at FIT. So I think the kind of unifying theme is engineering materials for climate action, and that involves both renewable energy systems as well as regenerative materials themselves. And it's kind of focused on, you know, how can we use um, in a very interdisciplinary way the tools of science to address, you know, the materials challenges for engineering sustainable climate, sustainable future, that kind of encompasses all the different aspects of sustainability. And so in particular, my research is focused on um, the development and characterization of new and advanced materials for renewable energy technology, from fuel cells to hydrogen as a clean energy carrier and low power electronics, but also regenerative performance textiles. That's that's an amazingly broad research area. So I mean, I can imagine coming at that from a variety of perspectives. Like, did you is this is this a story about a scientist who is fascinated by materials and and then got interested in the environment, or someone who's passionate about the environment and figured that materials were key to unlocking that? Um, it's it's rare we find someone who is who's working on fuel cells on one hand and uh, biodegradable engineered materials for the fashion industry in the other. So like. How did you how did you get into this? Um, I think it's from the point of view of somebody who is really interested in the environment and particularly fascinated by nature and how nature builds materials. Um, the first kind of research obsession was solar energy and solar fuels because that was the sort of ultimate in circularity. And then that that once I think I got into, I made that big switch from I'd been studying in the humanities to physics. I then I sort of went down the rabbit hole of how fascinating materials could be and this idea that you could take inspiration from some of nature's systems and engineer make new materials so use kind of nature's blueprints for how nature builds up materials that are high performance but still biodegradable and non-toxic and map that into materials industrial materials i was struck by how some of some of your areas of interest go back thousands of years when you're talking about I mean, in terms of just mimicking nature, that's obviously back to the dawn of dawn of life. But but in some of these cases, like you 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 work on teaching natural dyeing techniques for weaving in, around the world. Um, but at the same time, you're also working on some areas of science that didn't even exist or couldn't have existed even a decade ago, like uh, DNA programmed color and function into biodegradable materials. Like, h- how do you think about integrating these these cutting edge scientific techniques into these millennia old um, art forms and and sort of natural laws? So I think it's a little bit about you, you look at the experiments and then you, you take the positive results and try to optimize them. I'm just looking at experiments for maybe millennia um, and maybe to some degree looking at experiments nature's done for 3.8 billion years um, of R&D. 
I think this comes back to the circular economy. And I think the connect the dyes and you know werewolves uh, DNA programmed color is maybe a, a good place to start because that's really looking at, you know, techniques from thousands and thousands of years ago. And then again, something that was not even, we couldn't even really imagine doing 10 years ago. Why don't you trace that one out for us? Uh, tell us about the story of how werewolf, how the ideas behind werewolf came together. Werewolf actually came together. I was, um, I was chairing in the biodesign challenge at FIT and three students, Julianne Leanne Lee, Morgana Catterman, Valentina Gomez, who became my partners and co-founders of Werewolf. And they were trying to address this PETA Stella McCartney challenge for animal free wool. And so that brought them to protein engineering, genetic engineering. And in that whole foray, as we were working on it together, I was the advisor. It was like, we, you know, now people are engineering meat in a lab and leather in a lab. And can you engineer wool in a lab? And what that comes down to is engineering proteins, protein production. But in that process, what the students kind of got fascinated by was that proteins are so much more than kind of the building blocks. And they're so much more than it's a sequence of amino acids. They do things in nature. They provide color, they provide stretch. A, um, a wasp nest is waterproof because it's evolved to have a genetic sequence that codes for protein that makes it waterproof. So that was a huge aha moment because color, stretch, waterproofing, are what make the textile and fashion industry the number one source of, second leading source of global wastewater. It's all those synthetic dyes and finishing agents. And there was this moment where they said, you know, so can we take proteins that have inherent color and stretch and, you know, work with, as a material scientist, they said, can we turn those into materials? And I said, well, we can try. <laughs> and that was the birth of Werewolf. How, when you brought this out into the world, when Werewolf has started to get the, the attention it has and has started to win all these prizes, What's the, how have the large textile companies and fashion industry players reacted to the company so far? Um, I mean, I think we're happy to say that people are really excited. Um, and I, I think <laughs> what we're faced with now is the challenge that most of these new material companies in the textile space and, and generally biotech space are looking at it is the gap to market. So this, this is fascinating, this works in the lab and it's the issue of scale. Um, and so they, we, one of the um, awards we were so honored to win was the 2020 H&M Foundation Global Change Award. And that, that program comes with an accelerator that has connected us with a wonderful community um, throughout the supply chain. There's a space being created to work throughout the supply chain to actually bring this to scale. And I think that it is, it's underestimated how important some of that textile science milestones are to bring in at the early stage of R&D. Tell us a little bit about your other startup, Alginate. And have you found a similar experience when trying to bring Alginate to market? So, um, so Alginate, so the similarity there is that both of those were really um, exciting ideas with some preliminary, preliminary research. And then um, my wonderful colleague, Dr. Helen Liu in biomedical engineering, we, she opened up our lab to kind of explore them further. Um, she thought, you know, I'd never think that these materials that were growing tissue cells on could be used for textiles. Um, and so the experience was similar in that there was this really exciting idea, some preliminary data, and then we were able to work with our collaborators at Columbia and the Columbia Labs to, to take that to something where we de-risked, you know, the innovation. I would say after that, the, the exciting thing about was after a short time at Columbia, Alginit was involved in the Rebel Bio Accelerator. 
Um, and then from there, they were able to kind of enter a seed round, um, build their own lab and scale. Now, where we'll coming along a little later is at the point of kind of getting to that same point of launching into a space with the assistance of another accelerator program. I think the similarities that are really positive and unifying there are, are establishing those really good collaborations early to, to kind of de-risk the ideas and then finding a good accelerator to really scale them and have those um, MVPs and, and prototypes ready for the next round. So Columbia, for me, has offered such a wonderful springboard for creative and collaborative research, and then also pathways to help kind of with the tech transfer aspect, which is, is really, really critical. Maybe talk a little bit about the kind of challenges that early stage technology-based startups, these so-called deep tech startups, face when they're trying to make the, challenge, the jump from the lab to the market, and how you know, places I like a university or an accelerator can be helpful in that process. I think one of the big challenges for deep tech and biotech is the time frame. A lot of times investors, you know, they have product deliverables that don't necessarily match the R&D time frame of deep tech or especially biotech, which has a longer kind of arc um, from initial proof of concept to de-risking and scaling. I've learned a lot through Columbia Technology Ventures and my colleagues at Columbia um, that there are a lot of kind of stops along the way you can make and support you can get along the way. So the Columbia Technology um, Ventures office has, you know, they've helped us with consulting services for applying for um, some of these NSF entrepreneurial grants. Um, SBIR grants, et cetera. SBIR, yep. And then there's also, you know, connections. Um, it is really a small world in New York. New York is a very special, and I think um, really it's becoming a hub for this kind of innovation because there is, there's always been this sort of sense of community, even between different institutions and universities. Orin, I think we, we, we were involved many years ago on some committees about making different accelerators from different upstate universities, and, and we've been involved with NYSERDA. So New York's a very special place, I think, for this, and Columbia is still further a special place um, for kind of laying out possible strategies to a new biotech startup um, or students that are graduating and, and interested in taking their technology um, and turning it into an entrepreneurial venture. Um, but I think some of the big challenges are finding those pathways. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you leave the university so that you can start generating your own IP and building an independent research team, but sort of get support um, along the way so you're not suddenly raising millions of dollars to start a lab when you haven't really met enough success criteria to, to invest that much. You don't have the investment yet. Right. We talk a lot in our accelerator programs at CTV um, about product market fit and making sure, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of university deep tech innovations often feel like a hammer in search of a nail. Like we can now do something, but we're not sure what the something is useful for. Um, or, the, or the researchers might feel like, you know, they've, sold, they've got a great invention, but until they go actually talk to the market and or so-called get out of the building, as Steve Blank likes to say, um, it's hard to know whether the solution you've come up with is solving a real world problem or is solving it in a way that's affordable. Um, did you guys encounter either of those issues with Alginet or Werewolf, or was this an, you know, an immediate product market fit? Both Alginet and Werewolf were targeted at addressing a specific need um, within the textile landscape and even further within that kind of echo textiles market. So when we look at, you know, our value proposition, Werewolf not only has this inherent color without dyes or plastic, 
but that also cuts out um, stages in the supply chain. So I, th I think from there, the product market fit, we did have to refine and we got a lot of help there about what the big need is. Um, but I think at the, the scale at cost will always be an issue for new materials. And it's particularly an issue in the textile space in the fashion space when you're looking at polyester being less than a dollar a kilo. Um, I mean, polyester is wreaking environmental havoc, but it's still under a dollar a kilo. Um, so when you look at some of these new biotech um, companies in the in the fashion space, you know, you're looking at uh, sometimes $300 a kilo for a product. And I think to get down to the scale of, let's say, luxury cashmere, you want under $40 a kilo. So there's some room because um, through a lot of the programs at Columbia, like the um, NSF I-Corps program where um, the team did 100 customer discovery interviews. We, we could identify what the margin, what brands are willing to pay um, because brands are committed, Nike and other brands are committed to reducing, um, having climate reduction impacts by 2030 and they need to meet that. So they, you know, and customers are actually willing to pay more for environmentally friendly products, but there's still a limit. And so we've gotten a better idea of what space we have to get into getting the technology to meet the success criteria and then getting it down at cost are kind of two knobs that we always have to be turning at the same time in our in our materials iterations one thing that really drew me to them was not only the science and the, the interesting material science but the team um, that kind of goes back i think to a perspective is that having switched from the humanities to physics i saw the potential of the students and the teams they had built. And that was a big part that drew me to that work along with how interesting the science was um, and its potential for impact. You've mentioned that you're a humanities undergrad. And and actually, I, I, I've talked about this a lot, but I'm an English major myself without a scientific background. You actually went on to get your PhD in physics from Stanford. Um, I'm For the other humanities um, undergrads out there, um, how do you feel like that humanities back background prepared you for your success in the scientific disciplines. Did you have to throw it away um, and start all over again? Or do you feel like it gives you some kind of superpowers now that we can, we can look forward to? Uh, I, I don't feel like I had to throw it away and I don't feel that's a superpower, but I do think whatever success we've had is kind of a mosaic of all those experiences. So I think for me, the experience of studying and doing research in the humanities really did affect my perspective on the ways to solve problems with the scientific method. I always had this other space that I was drawing from and that I think maybe for me could diversify some of the approaches. So going from the humanities to physics and, and material science, I was kind of really fascinated by the beauty of the governing laws of physics. And for me, I think the perspective of the humanities, once I knew how the system, how polymers work or how metal water interfaces kind of, what kind of governs those interactions, then, then you can make all these analogs. Perhaps the perspective from the humanities, my, my breadth of analogs that I was willing to bring in um, was, was pretty big. And so I think then I, I, I think what I did was map that into to the toolkit and the scientific method that I learned through my my um, physics-based studies. You know, within a scientific approach to materials, engineering materials for climate and maintaining biodiversity and fresh water access, they're all inherently transdisciplinary. So I think the solutions to them demand transdisciplinary approach and collaboration. 
And then I, I think going back to what we mentioned before, from an entrepreneurial perspective, the background and associated perspective from the humanities has been, I think, most helpful in building and effectively working in teams. In nature, there's no rigid hierarchies and kind of always having being fascinated by how nature works, mapping that into any community or ecosystem and any team um, and celebrating the differences in traits makes for a very happy, effective team for the most part. Yeah. It adds that that diverse skills and traits in any community adds resilience. Um, and that, that sort of um, bringing in different perspectives and different collaborations, I think has added resilience to the research programs we've been building. President Bollinger has talked previously, he used to talk about how Columbia was a university in full and that it is that one of the, and it's certainly been true from my experience, one of the privileges of working in a place like Columbia is that it is an amazing engineering school, absolutely top-notch engineering school, and also a top-notch chemistry uh, and material science group within the arts and sciences, and also an amazing business school, um, and, an, and a medical center, uh, and public policy, and law, and journalism. And so so when you can draw a you know when you can draw on an ecosystem that has all of those elements in it and the undergrads who are working their way through it studying you know the 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 the, the fields that they do um, it is a really rich environment i think something that really speaks to that is um, my wonderful colleague uh, professor helen lu said you know for years, we kept bugs out of the lab. You know, the microbes were our enemies in the lab. We're doing tissue cell cultures, and now we're bringing them in to work for us. <laughs> uh, and that, I think, really speaks to that, the richness of, of different perspectives. Um, and I think how much kind of joy that brings to the pursuit um, when you're working with people with very different perspectives, because it's, such, it's, it's so fun when someone comes in um, with a different approach to the same problem that you'd never thought about. It's, it's just it's really just delightful from um, to a science mindset of how can we solve these problems. Dr. Shiros, thank you so much for joining us today. Warren, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to chat.